Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, May 28th. In today's news, protests in Minneapolis descend into deadly chaos with mass looting. A surveillance overhaul effort collapses in the House, and President Trump plans to sign an executive order targeting social media firms. But first, the big idea. There's a good chance the coronavirus will never go away. Even after a vaccine is discovered and deployed, the coronavirus will likely remain for decades to come as it circulates among the world's population. Experts call such diseases endemic, stubbornly resisting efforts to stamp them out. Think measles, HIV, chickenpox. It's a daunting proposition. A coronavirus-tinged world without a foreseeable end especially after our nation last night, crossed the tragic threshold of 100,000 reported American fatalities from COVID-19. But experts in epidemiology, disaster planning, and vaccine development tell my colleagues William Wan and Carolyn Johnson that embracing the reality that the virus is here to stay is crucial to the next phase of America's response to the contagion. It doesn't mean the situation will always be as dire as it is right now. There are already four endemic coronaviruses that circulate continuously. They cause the common cold. And many experts think the virus will become the fifth. Its effect growing milder over time as immunity spreads and our bodies adapt. For now, though, most people have not been infected and remain susceptible. And the highly transmissible disease has surged in recent weeks, even in countries that initially succeeded in suppressing it. Left alone, experts say it will simply keep burning through the world's population. U.S. leaders and residents keep searching for a a magic bullet to bring the pandemic to an abrupt end. Drugs that show even a hint of progress in the Petri dish have sparked shortages. The White House continues to suggest that the summer's heat will smother the virus and it will mysteriously vanish. Meanwhile, some states are rushing headlong into reopening their economies. Even those moving more cautiously have not developed tools to measure what's working and what isn't, a crucial feature for any prolonged scientific experiment. Tom Frieden, the former director of the CDC, says it's like we have attention deficit disorder right now, and everything we're doing is kind of a knee-jerk response driven by short-term thinking. Tom says people keep asking him, what's the one thing we have to do? And he answers, the one thing we have to do is to understand that there is not one thing. We need a comprehensive battle strategy, meticulously implemented. Combating endemic diseases requires long-range thinking, sustained effort, and international coordination. Such efforts take time, money, and most of all, political will. Experts say what's needed right now are more sophisticated testing strategies that could serve as canaries in the coal mine, increasing our speed and ability to detect surges in the virus so that policymakers can act quickly. States could select certain populations or areas to test extensively. They could establish a handful of sites that test only patients who have developed symptoms in the last four days to increase sensitivity to sudden increases in transmission. People also keep talking about returning to normal. But a future with an enduring coronavirus means that normal no longer exists. In coming years, robots and automated lines will become ubiquitous in meatpacking plants, which have experienced some of the country's worst outbreaks. Families may have to take diagnostic tests ahead of visiting grandma and grandpa's house. 
Once mocked office cubicles of a bygone era may become the rage once again, replacing open floor plans now found at so many companies. Paid sick time might become a necessity for jobs of all types. And heading to work while under the weather may no longer be seen as an act of admirable American can-do spirit, but instead a threat to coworkers and the bottom line. America's yearning for a quick fix has turned in recent days toward a vaccine, now being portrayed by the president as a miracle cure that will quash the virus once and for all. But the world has achieved that only once ever with smallpox, a measure of just how difficult it is for vaccines to wipe out diseases. And it took nearly two centuries after the discovery of a smallpox vaccine and an unprecedented international effort to vanquish it. Smallpox stole hundreds of millions of lives. Barney Graham, the deputy director of the federal government's Vaccine Research Center, says emerging plans for coronavirus vaccination are already stretching as far out as a decade. The success of that vaccine, when it comes, will hinge on distribution, a complicated and logistically fraught process. In the first few years of any vaccine, Global demand will far outstrip what manufacturers are able to supply. Roughly 60 to 80 percent of the world's population needs to be inoculated to reach what's called herd immunity, the point when enough people have become resistant to a virus that it has difficulty spreading wildly. Without international agreements worked out beforehand, the short supply could devolve into bidding wars, hoarding, and ultimately ineffective campaigns. In the United States, the crucial job of distribution will depend on federal and local health departments, which have already shown signs of both limited capacity and competence amid this crisis, to put it mildly. As a preview to the chaos that might ensue, the U.S. government's rollout of remdesivir, which remember we talked about yesterday, has been described by hospitals as confusing, unfair, and lacking transparency. America also already has vaccines for measles and the seasonal flu, and yet our healthcare system struggles every year to convince people to get those shots. It's just a taste of the struggles ahead. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, a second night of protests in Minneapolis over the death of George Floyd turned deadly. The protests became chaotic as police fired rubber bullets from a rooftop A peaceful protest earlier in the evening descended into disarray and looting. A group of officers stood in front of a nearby precinct and tried to disrupt the crowd with flashbang grenades and rubber bullets. At times, the tear gas was so thick it wafted down neighborhood streets where people standing in their front yards were coughing and wiping at their eyes. One person was shot by a pawn shop owner and died at a hospital. Looters ransacked a Target, Foot Locker, and several nearby small businesses. The images are horrifying. Mayor Jacob Frey, a Democrat, has requested the deployment of Minnesota's National Guard to restore order. Local leaders are pleading for a peaceful resolution. In the suburb of Oakdale, hundreds of protesters gathered last night outside the home of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who was captured on the video with his knee on Floyd's neck as Floyd yelled, I can't breathe. Red paint was poured into the officer's driveway and the word killer was written on the garage door. As demands for accountability rang out from Floyd's family, politicians on both sides of the aisle, celebrities and other high-profile figures, the mayor has called on the county prosecutor to arrest the officer who was fired on Tuesday. Yet after several high-profile fatal police encounters in recent years, some activists couldn't help but feel hopeless. 
Benjamin Crump, an attorney for the Floyd family, said that without public pressure, he feared authorities would try to sweep the incident under the rug. But he said that with the video, you cannot deny truth that you witness with your own eyes. Number two, an effort to pass a significant surveillance overhaul package collapsed last night in the House, falling victim to presidential tweets, opposition from the Justice Department, and the fracturing of a fragile coalition among liberals, moderates, and conservatives. House Democratic leaders decided to abandon a scheduled vote just a few hours after President Trump issued a veto threat on Twitter. They have not determined when or whether the legislation might be revived. The bill would reauthorize a number of national security powers under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The president tweeted his disfavor ostensibly on the grounds that it fails to address what he calls, quote, the greatest political, criminal and subversive scandal in USA history. While he's never explicitly spelled out what he means, Trump has blasted the FBI for its flawed surveillance of a former 2016 campaign aide, Carter Page, and accused the government, without evidence, of spying on Trump Tower during that campaign. None of the now-expired authorities the bill sought to revive were at issue in Page's surveillance, which the Justice Department Inspector General roundly criticized in a December report as having been conducted on the basis of applications riddled with errors and omissions. The underlying law here, the USA Freedom Act, expired on March 15th, a few days after the House had already voted to reauthorize it. But then the Senate amended the House version earlier this month to add in some civil liberties protections, teeing the bill up for House action. Number three, Trump is preparing to sign an executive order later today that could roll back the immunity that tech giants have for the content on their sites. Trump's directive chiefly seeks to embolden federal regulators to rethink a portion of law known as Section 230. That spares tech companies from being held liable for the comments, videos, and other contents posted by users on their platforms. The law is controversial. It allows tech companies the freedom to police their platforms for abuse without fear of lawsuits. But critics say those exceptions have also allowed some of Silicon Valley's most profitable companies to skirt responsibility for the harmful content that flourishes on their platforms, including hate speech, terrorist propaganda, and election-related falsehoods. Trump's order would prompt federal officials to open a proceeding to reconsider the scope of Section 230. A change could mean potentially dramatic free speech implications and wide-ranging consequences for a broad swath of companies that rely on doing business on the Internet. The order would also seek to channel complaints about political bias to the Federal Trade Commission, which would be encouraged under the Trump order to probe whether tech companies' content moderation policies are in keeping with their pledges of neutrality. It would also require federal agencies to review their spending on social media advertising. The wide-ranging order comes two days after Twitter took the rare step of labeling one of the president's tweets and linking viewers to news articles that fact-checked his malicious claims about the death of a 28-year-old woman in MSNBC host Joe Scarborough's then-congressional office 19 years ago. That fact-check label infuriated Trump, who responded by threatening to, quote, strongly regulate or close them down if they didn't back off. Trump literally used Twitter to threaten to shut down Twitter. This, of course, is something lawyers had to tell him he's not allowed to do because we still live in the United States of America. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, May 28th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe out there. I'll talk to you tomorrow.
Thank you.